Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining our podcast, Surviving in Companies. I'm Carl. I'm Marcel. And we are contributors to Surviving in Companies, a website that wants to help graduates and young professionals to work smart, efficient, and actively boost their career in complex work environments. You can find us at survivingincompanies.com. We are Generation Y professionals, and we want to share our guest's experience with you. Today, our guest is Dr. Michelle van Bruggen, who is department head at Philips Research, an innovative health tech company in the Netherlands. So we're meeting at the Hightech campus in Eindhoven in the Netherlands in a beautiful uh, location, looking at a little lake outside. It's evening hours. So welcome, Michelle. Great to have you here. Hi, Carl. Marcel. So, Michelle, we would like to get to know you beyond your role as a department head. And we typically ask our guests to share two personal stories. One of them must be true, one false. Um, and at the end of the day, we will tell our audience what, which one was right and which one was, let's say, fiction. Uh, do you have some stories for us? I, uh, as a side uh, activity, I'm a musician and uh, even had a conservatory uh, a course followed uh, for five years. Um, and I had the pleasure to, to once uh, perform uh, for, for the king of the Netherlands, uh, which was uh, even not that long ago. Uh, he came with his, uh, with his kids and uh, yeah, we played uh, music from, uh, from the Baroque time. I didn't get the impression that was music he particularly liked, <laughs> but that's uh, that's what we that's what we actually perform with with my ensemble. What kind of music was that? It's a baroque music, so it's uh, Italian baroque, uh, German baroque, uh, um, and uh, and French. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's a three people playing uh, with a harpsichord, a viola da gamba, and I'm a flute player. That's that's cool. So a very traditional instruments also, right? The These are original instruments, so all copies from from uh, from instruments that were used in, the, in that at that time, so 300 years ago. Wow! Yeah, cool. So, sounds interesting. Uh, second story, what what is it? I uh, once drove an American car, uh, which uh, was a, a bit of a. It looked gorgeous, and it was a big family car. I have kids, etc. So I drove with it and. Uh, At some point, I heard all kinds of strange sounds, and I was a bit wondering where that came from. Uh, it was a car imported from the United States. Uh, it had a one-year life uh, before it uh, entered here in Europe. And then I kind of, by accident, via colleagues that are working in Pittsburgh, uh, I said, you know, I have the impression that something happened to this car. And they said, well, no, I, uh, we have this system in the United States where we can track the history of cars. Uh, and they, so with a, with, a, with, a, with a kind of a chassis number of the car, they, uh, they looked it up. And then I learned that this car in Minnesota had a, a very serious accident, uh, was actually completely crashed oh, and kind of repaired in the here in, in, in yeah. Europe uh, and sold as as almost new. And I said it's good enough for Europeans. They don't really notice if that car is still okay. No, in the US they have a good system for that to figure that out. Right. So the first story was about the king's music and the second one as the car that is good enough for Europeans. Could you call it like this? That's fine. Um, Michel, let, let's talk about work. Um, can you think back when you were a kid, what was your your dream job? Well, not studying chemistry and not uh, doing something in music, uh, not at all. Uh, only later I, I got uh, an interest into medicine, but then I was 14 years old or something like that. Before that, uh, fire brigade, policeman, uh, extremely boy-like, so nothing very special. Right, so you never want to become a princess or so? <laughs> no, 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 that did not came to, come to my mind. No. Nice. And 
Have you ever asked why you didn't actually do the job that you... Well, actually, uh, uh, becoming a doctor uh, as, a, as a profession uh, stayed with me for quite some time. Um, and why I did not really choose for the job, I'm even still not completely sure why, why I didn't. Um, I choose for chemistry. I could also have done physics um, because I thought, well, you know, it's something you do. It's creative in, in one way or another, maybe not as, as, as difficult as physics. Uh, finally, I ended up in physical chemistry, so it's a combination of, of, of the two. I saw you have a, quite a lengthy uh, career when it comes to education, up to a PhD. Mm. Uh, and I also saw that you've been with the company for, uh, I think, uh, over 20 years. By yeah, now. it's it's 20 years and a month or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, jumping to how it is now, do you see that um, all those degrees have the same value as once you, you started your career? As, as the level of education in the Western world is increasing uh, overall, uh, the, the, the way people look at your degrees uh, is different than, than, say, 50, 60 years ago. Whether that has already changed uh, over those 20 years, I'm not so sure. The way, of course, that I look at degrees has, has changed. At the time, I was still a student working towards my, my bachelor's, working towards my master's. It was a kind of a, a paramount fantastic achievement once I would get that degree. Now looking back, of course, that's different. Our society looks at, at that. So maybe um, people get more used to highly educated people than, than in the past. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, do you, uh, from the people who come uh, at your department, um, you also have graduates, I understand. Mm -hmm. um, do you actively advise them to, to pursue a, a PhD or an MBA, for instance? Or how do you... Um, if they would come to you with a question, how, how well, do you... I, I do get those questions, of course. So right. we have, as you say, uh, students working uh, with with people in my team, uh, students uh, on, on bachelor's level, students that work towards their, their master's. And I, I, last year I had s such a discussion, uh, should I go for my PhD? Because I'm not sure. Uh, and then you look into, uh, yeah, into what kind of profile a person has. Is, uh, is he kind of constantly very curious about uh, everything around? Uh, is he creative, uh, innovative, uh, people um, perseverant enough? Uh, because these, these are things you need for a PhD typically. If you also see people that are more interested in, in getting into, in, into business as quickly as possible, and sometimes you see that just from the way they behave. How they look, uh, how they express themselves. What do you mean by that? How they behave? Yeah, uh, a kind of e easy way of presenting, uh, uh, working, uh, coming to conclusions quicker, uh, easy in, in, in having a, a kind of small chats, uh, small talks. Uh, these are things that in social interactions are, are important. And I can imagine that, uh, that if you have that kind of, of, of character, so easy going with people, but very outward fo focused, a PhD might be way too much inward focused. Huh? So, so yes, it can be very different. Yeah, that makes me curious, actually. Do you, mm. do you think that uh, this type of behavior is something that you, you learn along the way? Uh, how did that go for you? Or is that something that really is um, uh, part of a person, uh, or really of its personality? Uh, you change uh, along the years of, of working. Uh, you start knowing yourself better. Um, it's not that you change, uh, it's about knowing yourself better. Uh, I think uh, we all have uh, a kind of a root core 
that that's that's not will not change that quickly but you you do learn yourself better and once you know better who you are and and how you behave in certain conditions you're also better able to recognize that with others so in that sense uh, you do get a, a more mature view i guess on 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 people and and also being able to give them uh, better able to give them advice so if if i look at myself uh, i try to do this through personality tests do you have any advice for someone who's, for instance, a graduate to figure out where you exactly fit, uh, how to how to determine what would be appropriate for you, uh, do a PhD, uh, start in a company, should it be a startup or a scale-up, uh, any tools to navigate, basically? It's difficult. You know, my own kids are now at the age that they need to choose for uh, follow-up education uh, and uh, giving, the, well, you know your kids pretty well, and then still it's not so easy to give them the best advice. You, you, so knowing yourself takes time. Some people are more self-conscious than others. Some people know much earlier what they want and, and, than, than others. And it's not something you can easily accelerate, I believe. I didn't know it uh, myself either. And you just start with something. And if you have the right kind of set of uh, characteristics, you persevere. And at some point, you, you will get somewhere. So the way to get to, to your destination, I don't believe in final destination for anyone, by the way. But you will get at a destination at some point uh, that, that, that fits well for that point, point of time. And sometimes it takes a bit longer. And sometimes it's a bit... Uh, faster. I, I don't think you can you can manage everything with, with extra courses. I just had a chat. Maybe I, I can comment on that uh, with with my intern today, and uh, we were talking about what she's doing after finalizing her internship. And uh, she said, "Well, I actually don't know if if I'm I'm going to be ending up in having an office job because she doesn't know if this is really satisfying her for the rest of her life." And um, because she said she never had like a passion for healthcare or for sports or for something where she wants to work. And um, obviously what I said, and would love to hear your thoughts about that, is just test, do another internship, not maybe with ASML, which is the next largest company here, or with Bosch or with other large-scale companies, but maybe just try working for an NGO because she really wants to help people. Um, and out of these like testing where how they feel when they actually work there, she might find the right mm -hmm. spot someday or at least get a direction where she could end up. Like I fully agree. So exposing yourself to, to the to the unknown, to the to the uncertainty, not being afraid for for taking uh, small risks, I think is the best way to to get to know yourself better and to make uh, right choices. That has to uh, relationship with jobs, but also partners. That's right? true. I was thinking on that. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's 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 almost the same. Um, people often are afraid to to take risks, and they they, they think they they can do something uh, too too well. Um, they know for sure what what they what they should do, and because that's the best for them. No, just expose yourself to 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 different experiences and learn from that. I can imagine you have a lot of um, uh, good experience in this. Did you ever end up in the wrong spots? Um, where you thought this is not where I should be and, and how did you get out of this? How did you realize this? Well, completely in the wrong spot that did not really happen to me but I can tell you uh, I finally chose and after all kinds of uh, thinking uh, to choose for, for chemistry as, as a follow-up education in Utrecht um, and after two years I really had the feeling I, I really didn't, didn't make the right choice uh, uh, for all kinds of reasons. So I started with the idea of uh, going to a conservatory and that's what I did. Um, but I didn't 
dare to make the choice to fully choose for music, eh? also because of the uncertainty uh, as to future. So I, I did it uh, in, in combination. And that helped because uh, I missed that, that creative, more artistic lag, uh, which brought me out of balance. And with the two, it was extremely busy. But I, uh, I managed to finish the, the chemistry part, uh, which is a bit of a compulsory education the first three, four years. Only after the, uh, during the PhD, uh, your creativity is being challenged and you can apply that. And then I, I felt I did not make completely the wrong decision. So, so you mean you, during your studies or during your PhD, you still had time to actually do your hobby, which is music? And which you considered possibly being an alternative to chemistry. Is that what you're saying? At the time that I did, still did my master's, eh, so I was also started the music education, I, I had those two options open. Mm-hmm. After PhD, I, I don't think uh, I, I ever, yeah, uh, music as a, as a serious mm-hmm. other, other, other career, uh, yeah. more, more actually, actually like. I did. When I was in a third or fourth semester, I mm-hmm. uh, all my friends, I was playing trumpet quite a lot in j- mm-hmm. various jazz bands. And it happened that um, I was spending my weekends playing in various bands with people that were studying music. And I felt so good um, that I actually thought seriously thought about, uh, shall I stop my studies, which was mm-hmm. a business degree? And should I start studying jazz trumpet? And looking back, I still have friends who are professional jazz musicians. And looking back, and when they work, which is typically when other people are at home, um, how much they actually get paid. I think also family-wise, I took the right decision. Still combining music with being a hobby, which I still appreciate pretty much. We had uh, in an earlier podcast, uh, Joachim Dres, uh, the, the CEO of MIN. And uh, he, he described that um, what he drew a lot of strength from was combining a, a more technical aspect of his work together with a more practical one. And for him, that materialized in doing an MBA next to his studies. I would like to hear your thoughts on uh, how a combination of two things that it might not seemingly uh, connect so easily, and in your case, uh, quite an exact study combined with a conservatory, how, how does that affect thinking uh, work-wise how does that evolve you how does that change you uh, what does that bring to to someone well if there's one study that that really confronts you with uh, with your being uh, it's a music education uh, being uh, busy with music and performances uh, on stage uh, um, during your education and afterwards in what way, if I can ask? Uh, it, it tells you uh, uh, when you are in, a, <laughs> in good shape and not, because um, <laughs> uh, you're optimally creative. Are you? Uh, that's that's at least my um, experience. If you are in balance, if you're out of balance because of w- what kind of uh, reasons, you you notice that immediately yep. when making music. Can agree that. So, what does that did that learn me, and does that still learn me that uh, you are much more self-aware? about your balance um, and you also are much more sensitive to whether others are in balance so you you look at different aspects of being of people's being then maybe uh, when you I'm not claiming that I have the, the kind of the sixth sense but I did develop that more thanks to that that other education and also my daily work I, I make use of that so yeah, I probe people in all kinds of ways uh, because I also probe myself in all kinds of ways uh, to see whether I am in balance. Um, sometimes that can be, I can tell you, very destructive. 
Yeah, how come? I mean, are the people actually uh, asking why? Is my boss asking these questions? Or? Yeah, maybe people can may ask that. I, I did not hear that, but uh, it can be destructive just also for myself because you look at how people look, how people behave, what what they you know what they wear. That that sometimes can be destructive. It does uh, help you now and then, but sometimes it's not all, not always helping you. Do, do you have an example that comes to mind? Well, of course, it's difficult in this in this context to, to talk about people. But what I'm extremely sensitive uh, about is when people like our executive leaders are presenting on stage. You know, as a, as a as a performer, as a performing musician, uh, presenting on stage is is a is a very difficult to to touch magical moment. Eh? Whether you connect to your audience or not is something you hear, and people are silent typically when you perform. But there are different types of silences, I can tell you. So um, that that so when I see somebody presenting, and that can be our executive leadership, it can also be the king, for example, or somebody else, the prime minister, or you know, the, the people that have responsible jobs. I sometimes get completely distracted by how how they do it. So mm -hmm. not listening anymore at all what they're saying, but just how they do it and whether they. Make mm. this this magic bridge with the with the audience or not? Right, but actually, it's it's going far beyond the just the audio uh, thing, right? So you're actually just listening to the podcast. I would be very interested if you listen to our other podcast to if you understand the mood or if you can also hear um, if we're happy or if we're stressed. But I think that probably requires that you know a person pretty well. Um, but I found an interesting piece in, in what you were just saying. I read a book from Christian Gantz, who we also have invited to speak to us because he was a conductor for, for the BBC orchestra. So he was a violin player, then conductor, and then he moved into made a very interesting career move into the uh, music industry. And he wrote a book about um, how to transfer an orchestral music style way of working in an orchestra into a business. And he says, in a section of violins or in a section of brass, um, they communicate with each other without speaking because they have a clarinet in their mouth, for example. They can't speak um, without looking at each other. But just by the body movements, they immediately know how a person is uh, starting to play or actually, I mean, they should know when to start to play, but how somebody is like actually feeling. And being a musician as well, I, I totally understand what you mean because... Uh, it's something possibly invisible where you have shaped your antennas to pick up stuff that somebody who mm -hmm. just, in brackets, went to business school has a perfect um, diploma or master's but doesn't have these antennas that are actually mm -hmm. needed to socially communicate on a different layer or at least to feel this, this a bit better. So it goes as far as, uh, so not that long ago I had, a, so I have every week team meetings uh, and we had uh, somebody who had, well, passed away. Uh, but that went actually uh, through a suicide. Uh, so that happened. And now and then these things happen. And um, I also have people in my team that uh, that got into a, uh, yeah, an overload and uh, got overworked uh, and burnout. So I said, you know, take care of yourself. So it's, again, reflecting back on uh, on yourself. Am I in balance? And I'm not saying that I can do that perfectly, but I at least I'm conscious about it. Yeah, and, that, and that's the impact of, of that education. But also look at the others. So also take care of the others. So if you see that people don't feel well, 
act on it yeah? because you know we are people uh, that's yes you, you do see that during performances in in a small ensemble or an orchestra it's the body motion it's the, the breath uh, don't forget that we breathe and music is all about breath and about uh, uh, shaping your your sentences take care of what other people uh, radiate and, and act on it uh, don't don't be silent if you think that people need uh, attention mm-hmm. In the way that um, uh, people take care of each other, do you see any differences between how the, the more younger generation um, deals with this and uh, the more older generation in, in one department? I can't say so. It's an identity, it's a mentality, it's, it's how, how you are wired. Of course, if you're older, uh, you have learned to take care of people, especially when you have a family. Uh, that, that's, that's, I think... At least that, again, uh, teaches you. Um, but I think being open to somebody else or not being open to somebody else is not something that's directly related to your age. No, I don't think so. Does that mean that you also look for that particular trait in people that you, you pull into your department? Maybe unconsciously. Yeah. Yeah. So I would not. I wouldn't be surprised uh, that 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 you are triggered by certain uh, characteristics in people, uh, and that you like those people, hiring those people you like more than 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 other kind of characteristics. But of course, there's so many elements that you select people on. Uh, typically, we we look at the technical background and whether that's a fit. But personality fits uh, uh, fits to the manager. But um, maybe even important, the ability at least that you think. A person has to to connect to to uh, to teams mm-hmm. is um, as important. I so, do you say. also have a team aspect in a selection process where they run through team interviews? Yeah, once I was asked to uh, to look at the curriculum of University of Utrecht uh, Chemistry, and they uh, asked us uh, people from industry whether they have the right uh, subject being offered, and then I said, uh, "Yeah, but you hardly work on teams. It's all you know. People Individual. need to, to yeah. yeah, students uh, follow their their courses, lessons, and then they get the exam, and then they do experiments. If they do all this alone, and then they say, "Yeah, but that we do work in teams because they work in in a department." So they even didn't understand what I meant with my remark. Working in teams is is not something people uh, learn easily. But maybe it's it's a bit different nowadays than in the past. Maybe the younger people, but I'm not completely sure, are more used because of the social media. Huh? Yeah, there's much more kind of interaction than than in the past. Maybe that 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 helps in one way or another. But never got gave that a deep thought. Yeah, I think I think the interaction is also changing with. Especially by social media, because it's much more, let's say, electronic, and it's not necessarily being sitting down and having a coffee like I when I was a teen. I spent hours and hours in cafes and just spending three three marks in the, at that time or two marks because I didn't have more money. Um, but actually, so teams is certainly one of the aspects um, you, you mentioned. But but can you? How to say that? I think for our listeners it could be interesting on if they were going to apply for a position in your department, for example, what is the most important thing that you actually check for? Is that just cur- curriculum, for example? No. Or would they have no. class? Or is most curricula are interesting. No, uh, I mean, what otherwise you read, should not. What you read on paper is piece. often not that special, to be honest. So it's it's a, it's impressive that people you know uh, come to a certain level, and that that always desi- uh, deserves respect. Yeah, but there's so many uh, youngsters that that have studied for uh, study A, B, or Z. 
So it's 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 the combination. So is this a real person? And a real mm-hmm. person to me is, of course, you need to be uh, capable, mm-hmm. competent, but you also need to be a, a, a person who likes to work with with others. Uh, so it's again about the the, the team aspect. You know, trying to to achieve what is the best uh, for yourself, but try to work towards what's best for the for the overall total. Mm-hmm. And and that's not spe- finding people that really are intrinsically motivated to to work towards a result for the result and not for their own interests. Um, I'm not sure how whether there are that many people that have that that ambition. So basically, you want uh, let's say result-oriented team players in your team. This yeah. is what, what I understand. Yeah, it really makes me feel proud. So we we recently had a big preclinical study. We all do all kinds of preclinical studies, and I, if I see them in in a room, eh, so in a cath lab, uh, a physician, I see two people behind screen who, who are doing the video processing. I see somebody at the, at an instrument who's doing the kind of the optics uh, steering. I see somebody else doing the the uh, the case report form, and I see so so all those different disciplines. Uh, that's also the fascinating part in medicine that you are so much dependent on each other, like mm-hmm. in an ensemble, like in an orchestra. Right. Everybody has its own discipline, like in an orchestra, and then working towards a outcome. As a physician, it's you know you need to to treat the patient. As a, as a research team, is you need to prove that or falsify at least uh, what we do is 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 the right thing or not. So that's 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 giving me an enormous feel of proud and energy and and I I want to have people in my team that have that same passion. Mm-hmm. I I had a chat with a senior partner from a from a consultancy. Uh, it was pretty interesting because he said in interviews he if he talks to applicants for his department or he's actually divisional head, um, he says he doesn't want to look at this, their CVs because at that time when he speaks to the people. They ran through a selection process. They talked to HR. They talked to some whatever other colleagues. But he is pretty at the end. So he actually talks most of that time because he says, well, I know that you are good. I know that you are very highly qualified. And I know that you would suit content-wise into my team. But what you need to know is if you want to work for me. So he, it's actually, he's, he's a fascinating person and we are also going to, to speak with him really soon. But I think that's a totally different mindset change because at the end of the day, what I hear from what you're saying is team orientation is important specifically in, in your role, but also that you need to be able to deal with different personalities, right? And be not that you need to be a different person, but to adjust to some extent, so mm-hmm. that you can cope. So being a department head, I guess you have more than just one person uh, who's reporting to you and that's probably keeping you very much busy. C- can you just share how does your typical day look like when you get, get up morning, or maybe you don't sleep, I don't know. Can you just explain how, how is your day Maybe like? I do not sleep enough. Uh, so I have a team of about 35 uh, direct reports. Uh, so my... Uh, I always uh, uh, try to to get on my bike uh, because I need uh, the the exercise. Uh, and and to, because uh, you're Dutch, right? Yeah, yeah, but maybe. But if I would have been in America, in, in States, maybe as well. But then it's of course often much more dangerous. Even yeah. when it rains. Yeah, yeah, always. Oh, okay, yeah. then you're if really, possible, really I'm, Dutch, right? I'm I'm a pretty diehard. But I need I need that that physical exercise to kind of wash out and wash in. Uh, so in the early morning, it's a washing in. <laughs> At the end of the day, it's washing out. So the day is full of meetings. 
And these can be regular meetings. These can be uh, meetings that I really need to actively share. So, so, uh, share or sometimes uh, these are meetings where I need to participate. In that regard, you could say it's extremely boring. So as a scientist, uh, I uh, I had uh, yeah often time to to think and cracking nuts. Uh, now I have hardly time to to uh, to crack nuts, uh, but uh, you need to do that uh, along the job while you are in all kinds of discussions, uh, and that's maybe the interesting aspect of it. Although it seems very boring, uh, all those meetings on a row, because my my agenda is just a, a kind of a brick wall of 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 all kinds of meetings with hardly any time in between. It's trying to already come to a an action and a solution while while being in a meeting. Uh, so I. What I see changing, uh, working like that, is a, a meeting is, is something that you do to, to, to get something out of it, uh, to, to work towards an action. And that act, while being in a discussion, trying to uh, articulate that, that action, uh, what is now the best way to forward. Um, and for every discussion, because these are completely different discussions, mm-hmm. that's, that's different. So that's the creative part that's constantly uh, being... Uh, triggered um, in this work that uh, it can be this boring uh, agenda only with meetings. Right. You constantly need to think, oh, I'm now in this setting, I'm now with these people, I'm now with this person. Right. What is it what we need to do to, to make a good next uh, step? So you obviously need an, uh, an ability to adjust to various people and to different topics within a yeah, much shorter time. different settings. Yeah. And you had in, I think that I just was counting in uh, in 23 years working as a scientist, right? Yeah, so yeah, as, a, as a PhD, you are very much focusing on your own own thingy. And as an as a industrial researcher, of course, you do that in, 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 in settings, but those are much more stable uh, in this work. And that's also still what I like. It's extremely dynamic. So you have constantly different settings, different people uh, within your team, outside your team, within the company, outside the company. Sometimes you need to speech. Sometimes you need to speech something funny. You need to do something that's more serious, share big meetings with, with your team. There you need to uh, reflect on the year. You need to look for this. It's constantly kind of gearing. Can you just run us through a typical day? Except, uh, of course, the meetings that we understood is taking quite uh, time. What time do you get up, for example? Oh, okay, at 6.30. Uh, leaving at, uh, at spending a bit on, on se- at 7.30, uh, 8 o'clock. Uh, arriving at 8.30. And then it's non-stop. Meetings. So there's no lunch. Uh, it's just non-stop. Until, uh, yeah, 7.30, 6 o'clock. And then okay. I go back and then I'm home at, at 7. And uh, you are Dutch, so we went out for lunch and I had my sushi, I think, and you uh, had your sandwiches, Of course, right? the boring ones, yes. <laughs> so that's Always self-made. <laughs> very typical. And and you said you, you exercise um, via your bicycle, right? So this is mm. part of your, I guess... Um, your efforts to maintain your work-life balance. Um, do you do any any other things that gives you energy? Yeah, well, I do play a lot of music. So it's piano, flute playing. Uh, I do give concerts still in, in my spare time with my former conservatory colleagues. Play, well, doing sports, tennis, uh, sometimes a sauna. That's also what I like now and then. What is that? Sauna. Sauna. No, no, and, and of course I have kids, eh? and uh, I do that uh, part time. I'm uh, I'm not married anymore, so I take care of the kids three uh, myself. That's uh, now this this week of taking care of my kids. So That's I intense. need to be at home a bit uh, more uh, on time, eh? because then all the cooking happens. Eh? Nothing is being prepared if oh, yeah. I get at home. 
Well, yeah. but but the later you get home, the more they appreciate that you're coming home because they're starving. Probably. Yeah, they start always asking, <laughs> "What are we going to eat today?" I got a, a question of what you um, uh, when you were just summing up everything um, about the words you used. Uh, you said "boring" three times, and mm. then you you compensated by creativity twice. Mm. Um, I think you've been in this role for four years or close yeah, to four about, years. Yeah. Um, the balance between um, uh, what you think of as boring in the meetings mm. and the creativity, was was it what you expected? Uh, yes and no. So from a distance you see all those meetings and you see these people have busy agendas and yes, I can only confirm it's a pretty busy job. Uh, what I did not expect is uh, that the creative part uh, is always present. And maybe that's just about me uh, because it's, yes... Uh, I, I, I do feel that challenge yeah, between the boring parts and uh, I'm, I'm not, a, not an office tiger at all, to be honest. That's, that's one of the fears of these kind of jobs, that you get, get, get lost and, and kind of captured by, by only compulsory activities. Whereas that's, that's just how you, how, you gear, how you steer it yourself. So what's the antidote? What do you do? The antidote, uh, the antidote is... Um, yeah, it's always asking yourself, what can I do to make it better? What can and if if a meeting is not happening well, it can it can be not not be related to the topic at all. But just if a meeting, for example, international team um, with all kinds of time zones differences, and the meeting does not go well, and and maybe the topic is still relevant, but so how can we do this better? It's I'm always looking for how to do things better improve on yourself and your team. That's also why I still feel a novice when uh, entering this building. You know, I'm working now for 20 years. I still feel as coming in the, the second week mm. uh, because nothing for to, for, to me is a given. Uh, and I always try to, yeah, to keep on moving physically, but also mentally. Yeah. Are there any, any personal working rules? Because I personally, for example, I constantly check out new tools, IT tools that make yeah. my life easier, for example. Yeah. Right? I just started using Todoist, which is like a task tracking thing. And since I'm using that, it's cloud-based, it's syncing with all my devices. It's helping me much more than putting any tasks on paper, which I did and then I lost them and I couldn't read it anymore, blah, blah, blah. Is there anything that you actually do differently than whatever, 10 years ago? Yeah, I'm much more efficient. Well, four years ago, I think the biggest change uh, happened over those four years uh, so what what about, did you change then specifically? Well, uh, putting priorities. Uh, you get a tsunami of uh, of meals every every uh, every day. How, how many? Is that? Well, uh, eighty to hundred. Right, and, and you don't have time to read them eh, because I have these tech meetings. Eh? Right. I'm a bit exaggerating, but it's close to reality. Uh, so typically, I do the meals in in the evenings. Or, but that's something not very sustainable because then you really are working uh, until late and you only have five hours sleep and then you need to move on again. Right. So that's not, what I learned is not so efficient mm -hmm. <laughs> and not healthy either. So uh, being, being crisp, trying to read quickly, sometimes uh, skipping the things you don't think are so relevant and mm -hmm. try to act on a meal immediately. Mm -hmm. So don't postpone anything. Mm -hmm. Don't have a backlog. Just act immediately. Mm -hmm. Because the moment you start stacking things, it becomes a pile. 
And once it is piled, you get extremely frustrated because you still need to do that. So and it never feels good, right? No, act immediately. Think and, quick and act immediately. And I wa- sometimes, seriously, I wonder with people when I see their inbox because we're chatting or whatever, mm-hmm. and they have more than two or three thousand emails in their inbox as unread. And yeah. I said, why don't you just delete them? Because you will never ever find that time yeah. to read through them nor react them. Yeah. And the experience I made, um, I, I had a pretty intense job uh, in former times. Uh, sales related, so you got a lot of requests every day. And uh, coming back from holidays, what I typically did is following up with them. And I send emails, hey, is this still, uh, do you still need that information or is that clarified or whatever? Mm -hmm. And my experience was that 95%, and seriously, 95% of all these emails that I got in two weeks vacation, they, they were solved. It wasn't still needed any reaction. No, that's correct. And so what I did, uh, and that was a very, um, I was, had a business coaching and the coach said, well, why don't you just delete them when I came back from parental leave? And I wasn't courageous enough. But what I did, I just sorted them. I look at my manager's email. I look at the high priority emails that are sent as marked as high priority. I screened them. All the other, I deleted. And what I did, I just met with uh, people uh, that are key stakeholders to get an update, to discuss what needs to be done, how can I support, or uh, what what is needed right now. And that worked. I never got one negative remark out of these. And seriously, that was a thousand emails that I deleted, deleted and there was no impact. No positive and no... Yeah, so in, that, a lot that, of what does that learn you, as you, you think you need to do something, whereas often it's not all, all needed. Another thing that I, I learned is delegation. Eh? So if you have a big team around you, uh, you can delegate. Often I, I felt almost guilty to delegate uh, the things that I would like to get rid of eh, because I want to get rid of it and now you get it and now you have the problem. Um, so it's about wrapping a certain task uh, uh, in such a way that, that somebody understands what to do and that's also still providing some some challenge. Yeah, but I mean as a group leader with 35 direct reports, that's certainly one of the key prerequisites that you can delegate But um, can you think of something that a young professional that is just starting to be bombarded, or the, I like the your word of information tsunami, uh, is getting more and more responsibilities, getting more and more emails? Is is there a way that they can actually start delegating things, or that they can be more efficient? Well, I think the younger generation can better cope with this tsunami of information than the older generation because of the social media. If I see what uh, what my kids are doing in the early morning at breakfast, right. they are already checking their 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 phones because they got I don't know how many uh, messages from whatever kind of social media platform, yeah. and they do that way quicker than I can. Uh, they swipe constantly uh, from left to right and etc. But you know, if if the question is if you have younger people and how to uh, provide them opportunities for a future uh, and and how to uh, how to grow them, uh, then you should give them a uh, more responsibility, but also more freedom. So what I learned, people develop best if you give them a kind of not too ill-defined uh, task, but still a task with a lot of challenges, of which you know it can be done. So it should not be uh, something uh, completely unrealistic, but that requires a lot of effort, imagination, again, creativity and, and, and connecting to others. When people are just in the department, they are so uh, kind of impressed by everything around them. By the way, you, you, you notice the, the big talents 
already from that beginning. Yeah? So people that understand their environments already in a few months' time, and, and you notice that from all kinds of behavior mm. aspects, those are often the people that, uh, that, uh, that can get far in their career. So once they have that ability to connect socially, um, giving them an assignment uh, just next to their regular work, um, that's that's something, and you really need to think about that carefully as a manager. Because if if you don't, then you you send them in a direction that they can well get disappointed by, and then you actually um, end up with the opposite that you wanted to achieve. So let me rephrase that. So. Uh- if I was a young professional, I would be, when you split those uh, or delegate some additional projects to somebody who is at already 100% and you feel that, you would give them additional tasks to be at 115% that would probably not make that person satisfied. On the other hand, what I understand is maybe also a call for action for, for ambitious people that feel, hey, I have a lot of energy and I, I want to do more than I actually is written in my job description is also to accept that challenge or additional tasks in order to further grow, to step out of the comfort zone in order to learn. And you're supporting that by allowing this. Yeah, and, and of course, uh, that's that's the challenge you have as a manager. You see, Well, typically your team, everybody is booked on uh, for, for all of his capacity. Right. So uh, if, if you would take that uh, consciously into account, you would never delegate anything. Uh, you, you do every day. People that are talented, but maybe you can generalize that uh, to just ensure that people grow, uh, extra assignments are, are important. And if you think, well, you're, they're already booked, well, that's the challenge we all have. Uh, you need to put priorities. As you said, you deleted 1,000 of your meals, or I don't know how many, uh, and it didn't make a, a difference. I'm very sure there's a lot of slush in our, in our time spending. Oh, yeah. So we can do a lot of things well, in, in maybe less or not at mm. all, freeing up time for, to start something that is a special assignment. So some years ago, um, when I was still in that sales uh, support-related role, I did another thing that really freed up a lot of time, and I would like to share that with you. In former times, I, I was controlled by other people. So when I got an invite to a meeting, I thought or expected that those people selected me because they thought I would be adding any value. Even though I wasn't, after realizing, being in that meeting, I realized, oh my God, I'm just wasting my time here. Or I got a lot of uh, invites to meetings where there was not really specified what was the purpose of that meeting or there was no agenda attached. There was basically no information except that there was a meeting with product A. And um, after coming back from paternal leave, which I think was very important to me, that was, I think, eight weeks or so. I reflected quite a lot and I knew I don't want to continue like I was working for years and years and years. First of all, the first thing I did is taking control of my calendar. So all the meeting invites where I was not immediately seeing that I could be adding value, nor were projects where that I was leading or that I was, so to say, involved as an expert, I simply declined them. I declined all the invites that I got without an agenda or I asked people I'm not clear why I should participate. Can you please specify what's, what you expect from me, et cetera? Um, and that freed up a lot of time because what you were describing is you spend a lot of time in, let's say, boring meetings or in, let's say, repetitive meetings. And then you end up in the evening, obviously, really working and writing emails and creating content. 
not I'm not saying that you're not creating contact while being in those meetings, but I think this is something everybody should reflect also to the listeners. If you send out an invite, it means it needs to be read, it needs to be accepted. You're spending time. And what I was proposing actually is Outlook or whatever program you use should have an automatic calculation that shows you the amount of people that you invite, how much that costs per hour. Because mm-hmm. this is massive, right? If you spend an, an, an hour with a vice president, that's probably 300, 400 euros. And if you know that, if, if you visualize how much it spends, you possibly are much more careful in setting yeah. up big meetings, right? That could be an option, yeah. Yeah, we're running uh, towards the end of the, the podcast. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, but um, I got one question, uh, a set of questions, actually. Uh, can you name uh, your top three of advices that you would give someone who is a graduate and orienting him or herself uh, onto the job market? What would you tell them to at least look out for, uh, to develop, um, to take into account? Well, get exposed to the unfamiliar. That's a nice one. Um, Do things well. And think about yourself. Nice. Let's go back to the the two stories that you told us at the very beginning. The first one was the King's uh, music. And uh, the second one was the um, US car, which is still good enough for Europeans. Can you tell us about these two stories? I didn't lie completely um, uh, when saying the first one, uh, because I am the uh, performer, but I never played for for the King. And that US car, I don't have anymore because uh, I didn't want it. Seriously, the second one was true? The second one was true. No, you're kidding me. (laughs) I would not have guessed. I I was really expecting the other one to be true. (laughs) And I thought, nobody's going to believe in this because how? why should you send a broken car or accident car all the way from the United States to to the Netherlands to be repaired and then sold? Yeah, US cars are extremely cheap. And if they are kind of completely ruined, they're even cheaper. And then you and, and cars in US are extreme in, in Europe are very expensive, especially in the Netherlands. So you can still earn a lot of money. So guys listening from the United States, this is a business idea. Get crashed cars and sell it to Europeans. That still works. Um, thanks a lot for for your time, Michelle. It was a great pleasure talking to you. Thanks for being here. <laughs> You're welcome. And uh, so we talked today to Dr. Michelle van Bruggen, department head at Philips Research in the Netherlands an innovator which is passionate about his people and has these special antennas. So thank you very much for listening and visit us at survivingincompanies.com or send us an email. Thanks a lot, Michelle.